Let us pray together. Merciful God, your assurance to us is that by and in and through your word you speak. You speak the words of life. And so our prayer is simple. May we know your faithfulness. May we hear you speak through these, your words, and may you open our ears that we might hear and attend and follow. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our Old Testament scripture comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to sacrifice offered by fools. For they do not know how to keep from doing evil. Never be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be quick to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you upon earth. Therefore let your words be few. For dreams come with many cares, and a fool's voice with many words. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We continue on with the gospel, uh, in the gospel of Matthew as we have uh, this month of September, and we'll continue on through the fall. And we're in the very middle, the center of the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we were in chapter 5 and looked at some of the exhortations of, of Jesus, and in many ways chapter 5 teaches uh, the what of the Christian life, as one theologian puts it, and chapter 6 teaches the how how we start to really live into it. And many will point out and argue that this is the center of the Sermon on the Mount, not just literally, it's in the middle, but the center. It holds the whole teaching together, and it's on prayer. Prayer sits at the center of this most fundamental, basic teaching as Jesus is gathering his first disciples in the crowds, showing them what it is, teaching them what it is to follow him. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this, our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Daniel Simon is a psychology professor at the University of Illinois. He did an experiment a few years back called the monkey business illusion, and maybe you've heard of it. He had three people wear white t-shirts and three people wear black 
t-shirts. The people in the white t-shirts walked in a, in a small circle and continually passed a basketball back and forth to one another. And the people in the black t-shirts also walked in a continual circle in the same small space, passing a basketball to one another as they're sort of circling. So there's a lot of motion. A couple basketballs keep moving. Uh, this video has been watched millions of times online, so you may well know it. And he, when he first showed it, he would originally ask audience members, uh, audience viewers, to count how many times in this short 30, 40 second clip uh, the, the white t-shirt people passed the basketball to one another. People concentrate intensely because there's some motion. One, two, three. The video clip would end. How many? Sixteen. That's correct. The vast majority would, would get it right. They, they, they'd lean in and watch. It's not easy, but it's doable if you're paying attention. And then he asked, how many saw the gorilla? During the scene of basketball passing, he had asked a person to dress up in a large black gorilla suit and walk right in the center of all the basketball passing action. The gorilla costume person then stopped, took two seconds to beat his chest like this, made himself known, and walked out of the scene as the basketball passing continued. In Dr. Simon's study, right at 50% of all people ever noticed the gorilla. On one hand, that seems absolutely absurd. Could anyone honestly miss a large gorilla costume person coming right in the middle of an otherwise kind of simple game of passing a basketball? And yet that's the point. We notice what we're prepared to see. We think we are surely seeing and noticing everything around us, but the truth is we are largely seeing and noticing what we expect and are prepared to see. It makes you wonder about the basketball passes that we are counting every day, consciously or unconsciously, because we expect that they're important and that they should be noticed. We count ratings or grades or health metrics. We count followers or likes. We count attendees or budgets. We count bank accounts or, or scores. And not all of this is bad. Some of this is necessary. But the question Dr. Simon's experiment prompts for the church is, amid all the counting and juggling we inevitably are, are doing all of the time, did anyone notice Jesus making himself known right in the midst? Did we notice him calling Holding, healing, leading. Or do sometimes we get so caught up in keeping track of any number of, of good things that, that we just stop looking for Jesus, or, or maybe at some level we just stop really expecting Jesus to show up. One of the read, books I read during my sabbatical is entitled The Pastor in a Secular Age, Ministry to People Who No Longer Need a God. It's by Andrew Root. He teaches at Luther Seminary up in Minnesota. And he pulls significantly from leading sociologists and historians um, to argue that our contemporary society in North America is largely what, what he would call a, a disenchanted society. And he says, you know, whereas for, for most of human history, it was assumed that God and spiritual forces and angels and demons were actively working and thwarting and conspiring and helping... Whereas for most of human history, there was a sense that the world was enchanted with the spiritual vitality, spiritual forces. 
now, and particularly in North America where he really focuses his work, a lot of that's kind of an old foolishness. We like to visit by way of Harry Potter or Comic Con or Game of Thrones or Black Panther or Lord of the Rings. And certainly some measure of our disenchantment's good insofar as we've ridded ourselves of really untenable beliefs or, or fearful, very unhelpful superstitions. But he says it also means, you know, we live in a society where we assume science explains a lot of things, probably will eventually explain most or all things. And so many simply do not look for or even expect to see a gorilla cutting across the scene of our lives because that just doesn't happen. A personal relational God who has bearing upon our lives does not move in our midst, in the ordinary. And so Root, he, he writes this long book exploring our, our, our disenchantment and how we got here and what that means for a pastor, the challenges, the opportunities. It's hundreds of pages. It's fascinating. But really he lands the plane at the very end with, uh, with basically this implication, this most central implication There seems to be one clear way to avoid observation blindness. One clear way to encounter the event of God's speaking, given the reality of our world and society. This is the way of prayer. It's really a simple call, but but also a profound call to the church in our times. A return to learning about and practicing prayer. Whenever you pray, pray this way. What a gift to the church that Jesus would teach on this in a time when it is so easy and almost natural to miss God in our midst. Pray this way, our Father, Abba is the word. It's a relational word, an intimate word, an affectionate word, a word that immediately teaches us of God's loving and relational nature, a God who counts us all as family. Our Father, who's in heaven. And really the literal translation is in the heavens. It's it's in the plural. Because the ancient world understood heaven to have multiple realms. And the first realm of heaven was the atmosphere right around your head. Our Father in the heavens is to acknowledge a God who's both present in the furthest reaches of the heavens and as near as the air that we breathe. Some commentators translate the opening line of this prayer, our Father who is always near, in order to get at the essence of what is being prayed. And what I love about that translation is is that amid all the things that we inevitably have been watching and counting and attending to to our lives, that line draws our hearts to begin looking for God again. Because as it states, our Father who is near. Hallowed be your name. I think we often hear that as a phrase uh, of words that's paying homage or respect to God. We hallow your name. We honor your name and, 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 the, and the character of your name. But in the Greek, it's, it's in the imperative, meaning it's, it's a prayer. It's a line that's being prayed for God to do something. In particular, it's an urgent appeal for God to act. Hallowed be your name. It's a petition rooted in the first three commandments as well as in the likes of Ezekiel 39, 7 where God speaks and says, In my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel I will, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. 
We live in a society where all kinds of names and brands and people vie for our attention. And often we can't help but stay glued. We know our search engines are engineered to show us names and events and brands that the formula thinks we'll like. That will keep our attention. That will have us show up somewhere. That will have us buy something. Names are vying for our attention all the time. And this prayer acknowledges you who are love. You who are the source of all that is good and worthy. You who are our singular hope. You be the one name that that is set apart. May your name be recognized, extolled, cherished, over and against all the other names that vie for our heart's attention. May it be your name and character we see most clearly. And not only hallowed be uh, your name, but your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right, this cry for God's loving and just governance to rule in every individual heart, every church, all of society, all of creation. I mean, goodness, so much can be said about that petition. But I want to pause here and simply note how the whole first half of this this very brief prayer Jesus teaches is in many ways about seeing God and God's work in our midst. Our Father who is always near, immediate reminder to begin looking. Hallowed be your name, a desire for God's name to be clearly seen and known. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, a desire to see God's way and will made known. And then the rest of the prayer, as you know, it hits on the basics of life, doesn't it? It's very practical. Feed us. Heal us, heal us in our relationships by way of forgiveness. Guard us from evil as we walk this journey. And of course, all of those petitions pray in a way that, that orients our hearts to, to, to start to, to expect and look for God to move in those feeding and forgiving and keeping areas. It's a remarkable prayer, especially in a time when we find ourselves counting so many things, or in a time where maybe some simply do not expect for God to be showing up in the everyday. Dallas Willard, uh, the late 20th century and early 21st century, um, pretty well-known ethicist and theologian, he observed in his book on the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, we enter the real world. We see the substance of the kingdom and our bodies and souls begin to function for the first time as they were created to function. And he adds that the Lord's Prayer is really the main and primary door by which we enter the real world. And so maybe this morning we're saying to ourselves, well, that's compelling. I mean, goodness, knowing where Jesus is at work on this issue, this aspect, this relationship, this decision before us, Knowing how Jesus is speaking amidst all the things that that have us juggling and counting. That'd be such a grace. But the truth is, I say the Lord's Prayer every Sunday, and I say it actually a number of times in between Sundays, and I'm sure, not sure if I ever sense Jesus calling or holding or healing or leading or speaking all that often. Two final thoughts. Very practical thoughts on the Lord's Prayer in light of that. 
One comes from Martin Luther, the reformer of the 16th century, who exhorts uh, concerning the Lord's Prayer. You should know that I do not want you to recite all of these words in your prayer. Like, literally, the word-for-word prayer. That would make it nothing but idle chatter and pratter. Rather, do I want your heart to be stirred and guided concerning the thoughts which ought to be comprehended in the Lord's Prayer. These thoughts may be expressed if your heart is rightly warmed and inclined toward prayer in many different ways and with more words or fewer. What he's getting at is the Lord's Prayer is not some magic formula to be said perfectly with all the words just so in in unison. At best, it's a faithful framework where you could take one line at a time and let the heart linger over the meaning. Pray the implication. Let the Holy Spirit guide the words that are offered or the silence around each petition. Can you imagine taking a few moments one day this week A few minutes each morning or evening or noontime. Can you imagine letting yourself linger before God for just a few moments with each line of the simple prayer he has taught us? Or or maybe you're the type that would want to journal a short prayed paragraph after each line. Or or maybe you're the kind that would want to paint or make music interpretively, one line at a time as you communicate with our Father who is near. Of course, to do such a thing requires shutting the door, as Jesus puts it in our scripture this morning. And that leads me to my second practical thought about living into the Lord's Prayer. Jesus, you heard, he says, whenever you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. To be sure, Jesus is not against all public and corporate prayer. He certainly prays in his own life with and in front of others at various times. He's talking about the, avoiding the kind of prayer that's really about show and looking good and, and holy. And also, as theologian Dale Bruner points out, when Jesus tells people to go into the room and, and shut the door to pray, the room Jesus is referencing was a supply room where the animal feed and other supplies were kept in a poor Palestinian home. Hardly an inviting room, but the essential thing about this particular room is that it was the only room in the entire house where the door could close and lock. In a crowded house full of people and animal noises and all the rest, you could know this small space just to be with God. What Bruner's pointing out is that Jesus here, he's not only... exhorting us to avoid prayer that's really just about show and language and he's also commending us to seek the kind of space in our lives that allows us to pray facilitates a prayerfulness where our attention can really go fully upon God and I wonder if part of the gift of the Lord's prayer does not open unto us unless we risk locking the door from time to time or locking part of our schedule or part of our day. I mean, maybe it's why some of us arrive here on Sunday mornings, whether we're conscious of it or not, because it helps us lock the schedule down and hold our attention unto something or someone we might too readily ignore. Yesterday, the elders and deacons had their officer retreat here at the church. As I was planning for it, it struck me that their being present for their treat meant they were locking off their schedule. And I thought of these words of Jesus and I said to myself, you know, 
It would seem that we would maybe best use our times as officers of this church if, if we prayed together. So we did, and at one point I asked the officers just to take a half-hour walk around the church building, the church property, outside the parking lot. They could go around the, the block if they wanted and, and just and do a prayer walk. Ask God, where are you at work, God? Show me what you want to show me, God. Listen for God. If so prompted, pray. Pray for the congregation. Pray for the neighborhood. Give thanks. What might God do if, if, if a space were locked off for a half hour? Prayer walk. It was such a gift to not have my phone with me and listen to God. Offered one of the first people right back into the room, unprompted. A few others said in their own word, I really had no idea how much I, I needed space simply to pray and listen. To have that locked off. And still another, I looked at a particular tree right outside the church building, filled with all of its leaves, and God spoke to me a verse. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. She went on, we're here as a church for the healing of those around us. Which spurred a host of other comments among, from among the officers about how God is leading us right now and working among us. Because she was basically saying that amid all the things bouncing around in the church and in our lives and vying for our attention and vying for our hearts, she'd seen Jesus make himself known. She'd heard him speak. You're for the healing of the nations right now. When we pray, we enter the real world. And see the substance of the kingdom. And our bodies and our souls, and I'll add our churches, begin to function for the first time as they were created to function. The soul comes alive when we catch a glimpse of the faithful God in our midst. What would it look like for us in the coming week to lock the door or part of our schedule or part of our commute or part of our morning or part of our evening or part of our committee? What would it look like to guard a space and open ourselves unto the prayer Jesus taught us? as the most basic discipleship prayer. What might we see? What might we hear? And the good news is that Jesus teaches at the very beginning of his prayer, our Father, which means he already includes himself in the praying of it alongside us. As the book of Romans tells us, Jesus is always interceding for us. In other words, the Lord's prayer is already underway because the Lord is currently praying it for us and alongside us. And so the question is really not, will or will not any praying happen in the church, but will the visible church join in the prayer? And amid all the competing and complex issues being tossed around our lives, will the praying church begin then to see Jesus himself calling, holding, healing, leading? Amen.